Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about happiness. I've been thinking about the idea and the experience. I've been thinking about knowing what makes us happy and then doing it, and why some people seem so much better at it than others. I've been thinking about its elusiveness and its constancy, and the seeming paradox that seeing a sad movie can make me really happy because I happen to love going to the movies. I've been thinking about the study of happiness and living it, and mostly I've been thinking about it and not it. My guest today is Tal Ben-Shahar, happiness expert and New York Times bestselling author of Happier, Choose the Life You Want, and Being Happy, to name a few. Tal's most recent book, Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber, chronicles the life-enriching lessons he's learned from an excellent barber, Avi, and it's the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Tal, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you, Allie. So as a professor, you taught two of Harvard University's three most popular classes, the happy class, positive psychology, and the psychology of leadership. And I was thinking that that's very different from, say, Gretchen Rubin, who one day realized she hadn't given much thought to happiness, her own or others. You made a career of it. And so I'm wondering if it was surprising to you to spend so much time teaching about happiness and then learning so much yourself from your barber, Avi. Um, yeah, so getting into this field of uh, happiness studies uh, started off as a personal quest. I, was, um, I found myself doing well academically. I was a computer science major. Uh, I was doing well in sports. I played uh, varsity squash when I was in college. Uh, I was doing okay socially, so everything was, was, was going well, except for the fact that I was unhappy. And I remember thinking, this was almost 30 years ago, thinking, you know, how is it that I I seem to have checked most of the boxes that I was told that I need to check for a full and fulfilling life, and yet I was unhappy. And and that's when I made an about turn and started exploring uh, the field of happiness from an academic perspective. And so I studied as an undergrad and then went on to get um, a graduate degree focusing on on happiness. And, And it actually did help me. And I decided to share what I'd learned with others. And, and that's what I've been doing. I noticed as I was reading your book and doing some other research, there seemed to be a lot of uh, professors at Harvard who attended Harvard who end up studying happiness. And I wonder if they had similar experiences where you said, you know, you, you from all outward perspectives, were doing well. You checked all the boxes and yet you weren't happy. Yeah, so I think that um, more and more people today are interested, becoming interested in happiness, whether at Harvard or elsewhere. And the reason is because, you know, um, rewind, say, 100 years ago, you know, people had a a lot on their plate in terms of, you know, working uh, long hours um, and also thinking about how they can get basic needs, Um, the the basic needs, you know, food and and, and shelter. Today, there are more and more people, again, not enough and certainly not all people, but more and more people who do have their basic needs met, who are by uh, external standards uh, quite quite successful and and, and accomplished, and yet they're not happy. And that's, that's when they begin to ask these questions. And then other people observe the very successful ones, you know, whether it's the, you know, the the rock stars, the movie stars, the, the sports stars, and they look at them, and they seem to have it all, and yet many of them we know are unhappy, turning to often turning to drugs and alcohol. 
And people are realizing, more and more people are realizing that uh, perhaps we have the wrong formula. Perhaps the, the, the road to happiness um, is not through success. Did, I was thinking, did teaching the course of happiness make you happy? And also, did it make you happier? Because they're, they're very different things, right? Yeah, they, they are different. And, you know, many people have asked me um, a simple question since I started teaching and, and researching this field, which is, uh, Tal, are you happy? And the thing is that I can't really answer this question because I don't know of a, of a point before which we're unhappy, after which we are happy. In other words, it's not a binary zero-one. I do know, however, that today I'm happier than I was 30 years ago when I embarked on this, uh, on this journey, and I certainly hope that five years from now I'll be happier than I am today. In other words, the, the, the happiness is, uh, resides on a continuum, and it's a, it's a lifelong journey, a journey that ends when life ends. You say in the book that that people often expect you to be happy all the time, being the happiness expert. Did you expect that from yourself, or do you expect that from yourself? Um, I certainly did at the beginning. So when, um, when I looked into this field, I was hoping that I could just get rid of you know, the painful emotions of the sadness or frustration or anxiety that I would often feel. And um, quite quickly, I, I realized that that's, that's impossible, that painful emotions are inevitable. In fact, you know, I always tell my students, you know, there are two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions, such as anger or sadness or disappointment or anxiety, two kinds of people, uh, the psychopaths and the dead people. Uh, so if they experience painful emotions at times, I remind them it's actually a good sign. It means they are not psychopaths and they're alive. The, the problem in today's culture, and a lot of it has to do with uh, social media, because um, where we see people smiling, happy all the time, you know, having been on the perfect vacation, being a perfect job, and having the perfect family and relationships. We see that on social media, and we think, well, something's wrong with me if uh, at times I experience unhappiness. And then, of course, we become even more frustrated, and we even feel guilty about, about being unhappy uh, because we have it all, and, you know, how can we, how dare we complain um, so, um, and, and, and the thing, though, is that painful emotions are natural. They're an inevitable part of life. They're, they're just as natural as the law of gravity is natural. We don't uh, reproach the law of gravity. Uh, we live with it and we play games around it. Uh, whereas with painful emotions, we reject and we pay a high price for that. It seems especially once the intellect gets involved, right? You're berating yourself for being ungrateful and an ingrate. And so then even more... Um, disparate between your, what you're feeling and, and your thoughts about it. So I'm guessing that doesn't lead you to be more happy, typically. Yeah, that's right. And in, in one way to think about it is that you know, there are two levels of, uh, of pain. One level of pain uh, is the inevitable level. You know, we all at times go through difficult periods because of what life throws at us or just because. Um, so that's the first level of pain. The second level of pain is the one we add onto that because we reject the first level because we say to ourselves things like I shouldn't be feeling this or, uh, or, or how can I be experiencing this and when we add this level the second level is avoidable because if we simply accept well not so simply but if we accept painful emotions allow them to run their course um, they, they will they will go just as they can did you find that thinking about and learning about happiness 
um, helped you to be more happy in your life? And do you feel like your, your students um, completed the course with the skills to be happier? Did, did No, I'm taking that back because those are two different things. So the question I think I'm really asking is not that they have the skills, but did thinking about it and learning about it help in and of itself? Is, is the intellect help, helpful in that aspect? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question and not an easy one to answer. So um, th- there are two issues here. First of all, it is possible to overthink. You know, there's a very um, well-known um, uh, sentence by statement by Socrates, father of Western philosophy, who said the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, over the years, I've, I've added a, a second part to this sentence. So yes, the unexamined about life About the over-examined is not... life? <laughs> Tell us what yes, that is. Yes, exactly. The over-examined life is tedious. So, um, and, 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 you know, if, if we dig too, too deep into too much of the time, then, then we're not living life. We're living the examination uh, of life. And that, that's unfortunate and unnecessary. There's uh, some great research on, um, on journaling by Jamie Pennybaker. He teaches at the uh, University of Texas. And, um, and he himself said, you know, journaling really helps. He's done a lot of research to show how helpful it is. At the same time, he says, look, if you're feeling fine, then don't journal, don't over-examine. You know, journal if, if you're going through a difficult period, uh, use it for that. Um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's important just to experience um, what you're doing. So that's the first element. The second element of, um, of over-examining as it relates to happiness is that it turns out that people who wake up in the morning and think, I want to pursue happiness. Happiness is important uh, for me. People who spend time thinking about that are actually less happy in the long term. Now, there's a paradox here or a, or a real inherent problem. And here is why. Because uh, this research, it's by a psychologist by the name of Moss, shows that uh, thinking about happiness and, and, and explicitly pursuing happiness is problematic. It leads to less happiness. On the other hand, we also know all the benefits of happiness, meaning, first of all, it feels good to, be, to, to feel good, so we all want to be happy. It's, it's part of our nature. Second, there's also research showing that if we increase levels of happiness, we become more creative, more productive. We enjoy better relationships. We're more generous toward others, kinder, uh, physically healthier. You know, the list goes on. Um, regarding all the benefits of of happiness. So there's a problem. On the one hand, we're told, well, you shouldn't really pursue happiness because it makes you less happy. But on the other hand, we're told, well, happiness is a good thing. So what do we do? Do we we kid ourselves? Do we we, um, uh, tell ourselves, well, um, happiness is not important. You shouldn't shouldn't pursue it, wink, wink, but actually I am doing it. You know, how how do we deal with this uh, contradiction? And the answer is, that we pursue happiness indirectly. Meaning, when we pursue happiness directly, we become less happy. However, if we say these are the things that lead to happiness, for example, we know that uh, a healthy body and a healthy mind, we know that physical exercise contributes to happiness. Well, then I pursue a healthy lifestyle and that will contribute to happiness indirectly. Or we know that a sense of meaning and purpose contributes to happiness. So I can say I'm looking for work that is meaningful to me. We know relationships contribute to happiness. So um, we can say I'm going to spend more time with my loved ones and thereby pursue happiness indirectly. And this is how we get uh, around this, uh, the, the, the problem 
of directly pursuing happiness leading to unhappiness, and yet happiness being an important pursuit. And maybe in a way it's not a problem in that if you understand the nature of it, that it really is a consequence of something else, which makes sense that you you would really focus on the thing that comes before it, right? That creates exactly. that. So, exactly right. And, then it's, and you say it's not a problem, and, and you emphasize if we understand it. Right, and right. that's the key. Yes, that, there was because a big if there. If, yeah. Yeah. So you were going through a period of existential angst in March of 2014 when Avi helped you shift your focus from big questions to little answers. And they're ones that, that you sort of acknowledge you'd known better. So I'm wondering if you've come to terms with what was keeping you from that focus. Why, did you, why do you think we often forget or neglect the shortcuts to our universal problems and the common sense answers? Yes. So uh, a lot of... Um Probably the biggest cause that, that we that we are uh, unaware of the things that truly make us happy or don't pursue the things that we know make us happy is uh, time or time pressure in particular. So psychologists talk about the term cognitive busyness uh, when we are uh, busy doing many things, uh, juggling uh, a few balls up in the air, and we don't have time to really reflect on and uh, and savor. The things that are that are right in front of us. So if you stop and you ask people, and you uh, you know what are the most important things in your life, most people will, will know the right answers. Meaning they'll say, you know, it's my, you know my relationships, it's my friends or, or family. Um, they will say, well, it's um, it's it's learning to enjoy the little things uh, in life, whether it's uh, you know a walk in the in, in the woods. Or, uh, or, or enjoying um, an, an episode of Seinfeld. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, each to, to his or her own. The thing, though, is that when we're very busy, when we have many things on our plate, we don't have time to, to enjoy the really important things in, in our life. In our culture today, and especially over the last 10 years since the, the smartphone became so dominant in, in our lives, we don't have time off. We're always switched on. Um, and we need to we need to disconnect. We need to disconnect, and we need to slow down. Or, as as was in my case, we need someone to remind us to 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 stop. And it seems your visits with Avi, you created an Avi created a space, and you enjoyed it where you could go in, slow down. You also had a music soundtrack that was going along with your haircuts. Were you aware of that at the time? You talk about uh, Narles Barkley's crazy. I've been listening to your soundtrack in the car in the last few weeks after I read your book um, to get a sense of what it might have seemed felt like a little bit being in, in Avi's. Um, were you aware of the music at the time? Um, yes, I was aware. Um, of the things that were going on um, as soon as I decided to write a book about him. So I, I would always feel better when I, when I came out of a haircut, but I, but I never reflected on why. Uh, it was basically a, a nice experience. I looked forward to it. You know, I would often go and visit him when, when I didn't need a haircut. Um, but it was when I started to, to write a book that I realized that um, I, don't think, uh, um, I don't think intentionally but just intuitively, he was doing so many things that contributed to the um, overall positive experience in his, his salon. And again, you point out the music was, was always there. You know, there were flowers uh, that, he was put there, that he would put there. Um, and more than anything, his invitation to slow down. 
So he would always uh, invite it, you know, he'd say, okay, have a cup of coffee. And when people were, were hurried and harried, he would, he would say, no, just, just one coffee, let's sit down. And then, you know, one coffee led to another, uh, one cup of coffee led to another, and, and then to a conversation. And then people were uh, absorbed, absorbed in the experience. You called happiness the ultimate currency, and I'm wondering if you still believe that's true. And if you think our society has some bit of a convoluted relationship with happiness. You know, we mm. say it's all that matters, and um, but in, in, in another aspect, we think people who are happy, oh, maybe they're silly, or they're not that smart, or, mm. you know, they aren't serious enough, or, or it's almost a waste of time to focus, and selfish to focus on one's happiness. Yeah, so, um, you know, th- th- there are a few issues that... Um that you bring up. Let me actually start with the, with the last one. You know, is the pursuit of happiness selfish? And the answer is yes and. Uh, meaning, yes, the pursuit of happiness is, is selfish in that I'm thinking about myself. I want to be happier. The and comes because as I alluded to earlier, when I increase my levels of happiness, I'm also bettering the world. Meaning uh, those people who increase their levels of happiness are much kinder much more likely to be generous toward other people. And they're nicer to be around. Also, happiness is contagious, so their happiness affects other people's uh, well-being. Um, so on so many levels, increasing our own happiness contributes to, to a better world. So is it selfish? Yes. Um, but is it a bad kind of, of selfishness where we discard others and, 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 and step over others? On the contrary, we're much, we become better people uh, when we increase our own levels of happiness. In fact, um, I don't buy this distinction between um, selfishness and selflessness. And you look at the dictionary and, and they're opposites. You know, selfish, uh, you look at the thesaurus, uh, uh, selfishness is equated with, uh, with, um, with evil, with bad, um, with uh, egotistic. Uh, on the contrary, selfless is equated with, you know, good, generous, kind, benevolent. But if you think about it, you increase your levels of happiness, you're contributing to a better world. So instead of selfish versus selfless, my proposition is for the word self-full. It's through selffulness that we contribute to our own full and fulfilling life as well as contributing to others. I like that. I'm thinking the person that wrote the dictionary... Um definitions doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about relationships either because being Mm. selfless in a relationship causes more problems i think than anything else certainly in the long term absolutely and that doesn't mean that there are no times during the relationship when we're you know giving others and it's difficult and uh, you know there is some form of uh, of sacrifice however that's not sustainable and in a relationship to um uh, when we when we uh, give, we receive, and when we receive, uh, we're in in a better position to give. Well, and I love what Avi was talking about the pie, and that you know he he needs to take care of himself and focus on himself so that he can make not only make the pie bigger, but make the pie better, and then be more eager to share it as well. Which I thought was a great a great metaphor. Speaking of which, um, and food metaphors, let's talk about the hamburger model. <laughs> Sure. So the, the hamburger model was, was actually the first model that, that got me thinking about, uh, about happiness. So I was, um, I was a, a professional squash player at, at the time, uh, doing, again, very well in, in, in sports and athletics, and yet, and yet being unhappy. And I remember a particular, 
period when I was preparing for a very large tournament, and uh, I only ate very healthy foods. And, and I said to myself, well, after the tournament, I will reward myself uh, in my favorite hamburger joint. Um, the tournament ended. I went to the hamburger joint and bought four burgers for, for my favorite burgers and you know, put them in front of me and was ready to devour. And then I stopped. And in a split second, the hamburger model unfolded. Um, and essentially what I thought to myself, you know, I can eat this burger now and I'll you know, enjoy eating it in the present. It's tasty. It's my favorite. At the same time, I won't feel great after. Uh, so in the future, I won't feel good. Um, in contrast, I could, could have gotten another burger, which I wouldn't have enjoyed, you know, and not a tasty one, but which would have been healthier and I would have felt better uh, in the long term. And then there is the worst burger that's not tasty and also bad for me. And finally, I thought, does the burger exist that is both tasty and healthy? In other words, where I enjoy present benefit as well as future benefit. And that's where happiness resides. Happiness resides when there is an overlap between the present and the future. So often in our, in our culture, we uh, disconnect between these two approaches. So on the one hand, we have people who are always thinking about the future. You know, I want to succeed in the future. You know, I'm struggling now, but I need to get into a top school. I'm struggling now, but I need to get into uh, this top job. I'm struggling now, but I have to get a raise or a promotion. It's always about the future. This is the rat race. This is the hamburger that's not tasty, not enjoying the present, but is healthy, good for the future. And on the other hand, you have the other school that says, you know, that's not the path to happiness. You want happiness? Learn to enjoy the present. Forget about the future. Live in the here and now. Um, that's also not sustainable uh, because we are uh, we're also, not only, but also future-oriented beings. We do think, we do care uh, about the future. So happiness resides when you marry these two approaches, when future and present meet. For example, let's say I'm working at, at, at something that I really enjoy. I like my work and I'm also uh, progressing and building myself up for the future. Or I'm in a relationship where I enjoy spending time with my partner and we're also building a future together. So it's the combination where happiness resides. And we can't be there all the time. You know, sometimes we, sometimes it's okay to have this, uh, this burger for sure, which is not healthy, but, but tasty. And sometimes um, we go through difficult periods when we're not enjoying ourselves and, and, and we're not really, we don't really have a future uh, goal or an objective. There are such periods as well. And then there are periods when we do just think about the future, say when we prepare for, for an exam in school or for uh, a presentation that that, that is important, but we don't enjoy preparing for at work. Uh, but the more time we can spend enjoying the present and the future, the better off we are. And so you outlined five things that um, one can do to spend more time in the happiness quadrant. And of course, the specifics of those things are going to be different. As you mentioned before, there are different things that, that make you happy. Some of the things that you said you liked was were Tolstoy and hummus and, and a number of other things. And even those, I was going to say, you know, do you still like those things? Those can change. But what are the, the five sort of elements that one can focus on to maybe help them spend more time in the happiness quadrant? Yeah. Good. So, so these things obviously, uh, you know, change over time. You know, my, my life is very different t 
to today with uh, with three kids than it was uh, you know 20 years ago when I was when I was a bachelor, and um, and and we need to to think and reflect and again take the time and ask ourselves a very simple question: What are the things that that make me happy? And and if I'm wrong, then I then I do a course correction and 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 I change my ways. But but and yet and yet there are things that are universal. The number one predictor of happiness, the number one predictor of happiness is relationships. There was uh, a fascinating study run over a period of 75 years um, at Harvard, looking at Harvard graduates when they were um, young, just or very early 20s, and followed them for 75 years. So for most of them, it was for the rest of their lives. And, um, and looking at the community, community members, and following them for 75 years. And they collected over those 75 years, and it was obviously multiple uh, researchers, um, they, they collected literally millions of data points. And what they found at the end of, uh, was that the best predictor of both happiness of these individuals, as well as physical health, so mental health and physical health of these individuals, was relationships, their, the quality of their relationships. Now, interestingly, the re, what kind of relationships they had didn't matter much. So some of them, their um, key relationship was a romantic one, you know, perhaps a marriage. For others, it was their friends. For others, in the same study with the same remarkable results when it comes to physical as well as mental health, uh, it was, um, it was a, a, a family, a large family or a small family. For others, it was business relationships. It didn't matter but they enjoyed and they prioritized relationships in their lives. Now, the, the thing about this result is that they were talking about real relationships, not virtual relationships. Unfortunately, 1,000 friends on social media are no substitute for that one or two close, intimate friends. Um, so relationships um, contribute to us being um, in that uh, what I've come to call the happiness quadrant, where, where both present and future benefit reside. Uh, in addition, physical exercise, physical activity is critical for happiness. Once again, not just important for our physical health, it's also important for our mental health. So three times a week uh, of exercising, um, whether it's jogging, running, uh, or uh, swimming, or playing ball, it doesn't matter. However, ideally, exercise that we enjoy. Because if we do exercise that we enjoy, we're not just thinking about the future, that I'll feel better after the session, we're also enjoying the present. Because I'm enjoying play I, I, I love playing soccer, or, or, or I love swimming, or, or doing yoga, whatever it is. Um, another very important component of happiness is gratitude. So I, I started a gratitude journal back in 1999. So exactly 20 20 years ago, and I started it because Oprah was talking about it on one of her programs, and it was uh, three years later that I first encountered research on, on gratitude. That's by uh, Robert Emmons from, uh, from UC Davis, and um, what the research shows is that people who express gratitude on a regular basis are not just happier, they're also more optimistic, they're kinder, generous toward other people, and once again, they're physically healthier, so their immune system is, is stronger. And then finally, just one, one more thing about, uh, about happiness. 
which also seems like a, like a paradox. The first step of attaining happiness is allowing in unhappiness. I mentioned this at the beginning, when we, when we reject unhappiness, uh, unhappiness only increases. It's when we accept that unhappiness is part and parcel of every life. It's part and parcel of a full and fulfilling life. It's then that we open ourselves up to more happiness. And, and maybe the reason for that is that twofold. One, authenticity, right? You're acknowledging your emotions and, and letting them express themselves authentically, but also then allows you to open up and, and feel the other ones as well. You sort of can't pick and choose. Well, I'll have this one, but not that one. Mm. Yes, exactly right. You know, back in the 1970s, Golda Meir, who was uh, uh, the Israeli prime minister then, said, those who cannot weep with their whole heart cannot laugh with their whole heart either. Um, more recently, Brene Brown, who writes a lot and talks a lot about vulnerability, said something very similar, which is we can't, we can't pick and choose. Yeah, I'll have this emotion and, and not this. You know, you're either allowing yourself yourself to experience emotions or, or, or you're rejecting them, in which case you're also rejecting the pleasurable ones, not just the painful ones. So let's talk a little bit about what Avi's getting right. I mean, he's dedicated to self-improvement and personal growth. Mm. He's embracing change. He treats himself well so he can treat others well. What else did you realize that Avi w was getting right? The other thing that he was getting right, is getting right, is um, he values silence. And that has to do with, uh, with the importance of, uh, of reflection. Now, there's a wonderful book uh, called uh, Lila. It's written by the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert M. Piercig. And in Lila, Piercig compares the, um, the Western American culture, so the white American culture, to the Native American culture. And um, one of the things that he identifies there in terms of the differences is the relationship to silence. Um, so the, the, the Western culture, the North American, white or European culture, I feel uncomfortable when there is silence. So we fill it up with words and small talk. And, and you know, we, when we go on a date and, and there is silence, it's awkward silence. It's not just silence. Um, whereas the Native Americans would very often sit around, you know, the, uh, a fire or just in the field with one another and, and be silent for an hour or two. And they would feel perfectly fine with that. They would uh, introspect, they would savor during that time. And, um, and, you know, I thought about it a lot, especially as I was sitting um, um, in, the, um, in the barber's chair. And sometimes I intuitively felt that, um, that, that I needed silence. You know, maybe I wasn't in a, in, a, in, a, in a great mood or I was in an okay mood, but just not in the mood for, for talking. And he was fine with, uh, with silence, you know, no guilt or, or hard feelings over it. And I felt that that was uh, really restorative. Um, now, speaking of restorative, this is another uh, important element that came, you know, today, Probably the, you know, I'm often called by companies to come and consult about well-being of the employees and so on. And by far, the number one reason I'm called today um, to consult for companies is stress, uh, burnout, uh, the fact that they're just not handling the, the pressure. And um, stress is a, is, is a very interesting um, uh, idea to think about. 
Now, on the one hand, we know that stress uh, can be harmful. On the other hand, if you look at the data, stress can actually be good for us. One way to think about it is, is the following. You go to the gym, and in the gym you lift weights. What are you doing to your muscles when you lift weights? You're stressing them. Now, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, because, you know, I lift weights, and, and two minutes later I lift the same weights, and then two days after I go back to the gym and lift weights again, and over time I get stronger, more resilient, healthier, better off. Um, so that's not a problem, the stress. The problem in, in the gym begins when I lift weights, and then more weights, and then more and more weights. And that's when I get injured. That's when I get weaker rather than stronger. The problem, therefore, is not the stress in and of itself. The problem is when there isn't sufficient recovery following the stress. Um, and that's what we see in organizations today. This is what we see in schools today. We don't have, our children don't have, uh, enough time for recovery because we're on all the time. Now, silence is a fantastic form of, of recovery. Which is, which is very important. And, and unfortunately, there's so much noise uh, around us. And when there is silence, we immediately fill up that void, the silence, with, uh, with, you know, by, by checking our messages again for the 13th time this hour. And, and we pay a high price for this noise, for this lack of recovery. It seems like we've got to ask ourselves, are we building chi in this behavior or are we diminishing it? And that Avi is aware of that a lot of the time, that he, he knows himself, he asks himself, what do I like? And then he also believes he's deserving enough to then give himself what he likes, whether it's music or flowers or, or the, mm. the behaviors that he's choosing. Yeah, and, and I think um, a, a very important point that you bring up is that he's deserving enough. Of, uh, of these things. And again, many people today feel guilty about giving themselves as well. You know, uh, uh, Adam Grant, who's a professor at Wharton, the business school, uh, did amazing research on givers. And um, what he found was that he, he was essentially able to dis uh, distinguish three groups of people, the givers, the takers, and the matchers. So the givers are the ones who give. They're the nice guys. The, the takers are the ones who take and want to use other people. The matchers are the ones who say, um, if you give me five, I'll give you five. If you give me five and a half, I'll do the same. Uh, you know, they want um, uh, quid pro quo. And, um, and what he found was that in organizations, um, when he looked at success, that the most successful people overall, there were, of course, exceptions in all three groups, but overall, the most successful people were the givers. The other thing that he found was that in these very same organizations, the least successful people were also givers. In other words, givers were disproportionately represented at the top and at the bottom. And then in the middle, you had the matchers and the takers. Um, and, and the interesting research question, of course, is, what is the difference between the givers at the top and the givers at the bottom? And the answer was that the givers at the top also gave themselves. The givers at the bottom neglected themselves. And as we talked about earlier, you know, you can't give when you're empty. And, um, and they weren't able to sustain uh, hard work, uh, consistent performance if they were just giving, giving to others 
and not giving to to themselves. So um, yes, Avi was not uh, apologetic about also giving to himself, also saying, look, I need time off. Also, you know, one of the examples I give, he, he, when, when he talks to his children, for example, he says to them, I demand one-on-one time with you. Because one-on-one time for him is, is a place where he's giving, obviously, his children, and he's also giving himself. Well, and Avi clearly has a strong sense of self and, and a sense of self-empowerment just from the way that he is choosing. He talks about it when a friend of his broke his trust. And he says, you know, I'm choosing the way that I want to be in the world and I'm going to act rather than react. And the same elements come in when he talks about the art of decision making, that he's going to wait until he knows the answer. And I thought that that was just magic. The idea of waiting and having the strength of resolve to be able and the confidence to be able to wait until the answer arrives. Yes, and, and, and for that you need, uh, uh, you need patience and you need practice. Um, you know, most, most of the choices that we make in life I've come to call rhetorical choices, uh, meaning um, just like you have rhetorical questions, you know, if, if, you know, when I ask my kid, do you want me to get to, to, to be mad? Well, of course, he doesn't want me to be mad. It's a rhetorical question. Um, in the same way, we have rhetor- rhetorical choices, meaning choices that the, the, that the path we ought to take is, is very clear. For example, uh, a rhetorical choice is one, um, do, I, um, um, do I want to get angry um, or do I want to count to 10 and then choose the appropriate path? Well, the answer is, of course, I want to choose the appropriate, uh, take the appropriate path. It's a rhetorical choice. Or do I want to breathe deeply when I know that this is healthy for me? Or do I want to take shallow breaths when I know this is unhealthy for me? It's a rhetorical choice. I know the, uh, the right choice here. The problem is that when we don't have time to think about and, and after that make the choice, um, we, um, we prevent ourselves from taking the right, the right path. And Avi is mature enough to know that he has to stop to reflect so that he can make the right rhetorical choice. You know, for example, one of my, 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 my favorite Avi stories is, um, uh, happened when you know, I was having my hair cut and a woman walks into his, uh, his salon and uh, you know, she, she sits down and she's seething. She's so angry and Avi says, you know, what, what, you know what's up, what, what happened? And she said, you know, this idiot just cut me off, uh, uh, just took my parking space, and, you know, I'm so upset with him, and blah, blah. And Avi says, you know, let me tell you what I do when, um, when, when someone cuts me off. He says, you know, let's say I'm, I'm in a parking lot, and I'm waiting for this guy to come out so that I can get into his parking spot. And then just as this guy comes out, another guy with a big SUV comes, cuts me off, and takes my spot. And, and, you know, this woman is expecting, you know, to hear, yes, you know, Avi, you know, strong guy, did you beat him up or what? <laughs> and, and Avi says to her, what I do then is I imagine that a cow just cut me off. Now, both of us, you know, the, the woman and I start, start laughing. And we say, what, what do you mean cow cut you off? And he said, yeah, I imagine that instead of that SUV, it was a cow. And, and we continue laughing. And Avi says, you know, exactly. You know, if I think that a cow cuts me off, I laugh. Whereas if I think that this guy in his SUV cut me off, I get angry. And he said, I have a choice. 
I can make that decision. Now, again, Avi does this, you know, very silly maneuver, seemingly, but it's actually, there's a lot of research behind it because what the research shows is that we cannot experience uh, two contradictory emotions at the time, at the same time. Um, in other words, I can't experience anger and, and, and humor uh, at, right at the, the exact same time. So if I replace that anger with humor, I will choose uh, wisely or more wisely. Um, do I cut that person off or, or do I get angry or do I you know, let them do, do their thing if it's not a big deal? And uh, it's making these small choices on a regular, consistent basis. This is, this is what essentially adds up to a life, to a, to a better life if we make better decisions. Well, better and an choices. empowered life as well, right? You can choose to reframe exactly. the situation and respond to that rather than exactly. be You're the, not the victim of circumstance. So, yeah. so let's talk about the other element that I think is, is very apparent in, in Avi and his experience with you is this level of trust and, and a trust, you know, that, that aspect of being willing to wait for the right answer to come and, and for the knowingness to arrive. That you talk a lot about the, the or a couple times in the book, about a psychologically safe environment. And you mentioned mm. the, the circle of creativity. Um, and that it seems like that was for you created a bit in your experiences when you were getting your hair cut. Yeah, so um, one, one of my ex-colleagues, Amy Edmondson, uh, she's uh, at Harvard Business School today, did research on psychological safety, and essentially what she showed was that the most creative and successful teams are the teams who enjoy psychological safety. What's psychological safety? It's a place where it, psychological safety is when you feel that it's okay to fail, when it's okay to take risks, that you will not be put down if you if you make a mistake. And in places like this, children as well as adults thrive and flourish. It's when we are afraid of making mistakes. It's when we're afraid of taking risks. Uh, then that's when we, uh, we stop developing and growing. So you look at the most innovative uh, teams, the most innovative organizations. They enjoy psychological safety. You look at the best uh, schools, you even look at on the national level at the most creative uh, nations in the world, um, there is overall psychological safety there. Now, you can experience it on a macro level, on a national level, on a smaller scale in an organization or a team, or you can experience it sitting in the barber chair. You know, Avi gives you the feeling that, you know, that it's okay to be, to be silly, and therefore it's okay to take risks and make mistakes. You know, when he tells a story like the story he told about the, you know, the cow cutting him off, um, you know, there's no pretense there. It's, you know, it's, it's silly to an extent. But by doing so, he's giving um, me, you, the permission to, to also uh, be silly, to also think outside the box, to also, uh, to also take risks. There is no, um, there's no facade there of uh, having to put up an, an image um, and, and, and therefore, there is psychological safety. And psychological safety, as I said, it's critical for children's development, for organizational uh, development, and even for national development. 
I was thinking about this morning, you know, what, what does happiness mean for me? And I was thinking, okay, for me, it's like this feeling of this sparkly clarity, this alignment of the internal spirit and the external action. And you have to be able to be in the space that you're talking about in either, you know, in your outward environment or internally where there's psychologically safety. So you can know it or not it. Does this feel right or not feel right, right? To, to be able to hear the messages <clears throat> that indicate if this activity is uh, or the space is aligned with, with um, happiness. Yeah, exactly. Now, 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 imagine if you could generate this, um, this sense, the sense of being independently. So, you know, we so often we wake up in the morning and, uh, and again, immediately we start going into these... Um, um, internal conversations, and very often they extend uh, to, to external conversations about, uh, is this good enough? Am I good enough? Should I do this or should I do that? Now imagine waking up in the morning and giving yourselves, uh, giving yourself the permission to be human, giving yourself psychological safety and saying, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to do my best. You know, why, why would I not? Um, and it's okay if I fall down. It's okay if not everyone approves of of what I do or, or say, it's okay if I make a mistake. And walking through life in that, in, in, in that way. And, you know, I often thought about how, or, or rather whether, this feeling that I, that I experienced around uh, Avi in, in his salon, whether it was transportable to other places. In other words, could I take the salon with me also to a business meeting? When, um, when, when, when different things are, are at stake. And, and the answer to my mind is, is why not? You know, why can't we learn? Again, by taking time, by reflecting, um, why can't we take this feeling of psychological safety elsewhere with us so that we can, uh, so that we can experience it? And um, it's one of those rhetorical choices because if you ask me or most people, uh, do you want to have this feeling of comfort in your own skin? And you want to experience it uh, most hours during the day. You know, it's not possible to experience it 24-7, but for more of the time. It's a rhetorical uh, question. It's a rhetorical choice. Yes, of course, I want to experience more of it. And the thing is, to experience it more often, we need to remind ourselves um, that, that it's possible. And we can remind ourselves, you know, personally, I can remind myself by going to Avi day in and day out or by making a note uh, of it in my, you know, in my daily scheduler or by writing about it on a regular basis in my, uh, in my journal to bring this sense of security, of psychological safety, um, to bring it with me wherever I go. And I'm just going to throw in it by reading Shortcuts to Happiness. That's another way <laughs> that we can, because I, I want to talk a little bit, we won't end with this because that seems wrong, but I want to talk a little bit before we end about how we go off the rails. What are the biggest obstacles to being happy? And, mm. and I think it's important to think about it in the realm of, you know, inside ourselves and outside ourselves, because that may be one of the elements in our society that we very much look for happiness in objects outside of ourselves yeah. or, or accomplishments that are in a way outside of ourselves, even if the, we're the ones that accomplished it. Yeah, so there, there are a few misconceptions that are leading us astray, that are leading us to unhappiness. One of them that you know, I started off with is uh, that success will lead to happiness. So we think, okay, it's the next promotion, it's that next raise, it's that bigger house, bigger car, 
a better partner, this is, this is the answer to our happiness. It's not. Happiness depends much more on our state of mind rather than on our status or the state of our bank account. Um, yes, basic needs are essential. Uh, of course, food, shelter are critical uh, for survival and naturally, uh, by extension, for happiness. Uh, however, beyond the basic needs, it, it mostly depends on us whether or not we're, we're happy. So what does it mean to look inside? It means to, to appreciate what we already have more. You know, I talked about, about gratitude. It means to get regular physical exercise, which we can do uh, without getting that raise or that promotion. Um, so, so that's one of the, mis, um, of the illusions when it comes to happiness, that it's success uh, leading to happiness. The other thing that is taking people away from happiness, and I mentioned this, are virtual relationships. So Eric Kleinberg, who's a, a sociology professor at NYU, um, has shown that the more time people spend on social media, again, emphasis on social media, the more time they spend there, the lonelier they are. And as I said, all those friends on social media are no substitute for those um, real, intimate, face-to-face -face interactions. And that's where happiness, uh, where happiness resides. Another Harvard psychologist, Daniel Gilbert, um, mentioned having and pursuing dreams is more important than succeeding. And, and definitely our culture is so focused on the idea of success and succeeding and not making mistakes mm. um, and not so much on the pursuing part. Exactly. And, you know, this um, um, Daniel Gilbert's idea um, essentially synthesizes between the two schools that I mentioned earlier, the one school saying it's all about the future, the other school saying it's all about the present. Because what the future school says is that when you attain the goal, that's when you'll be happy. And what Daniel Gilbert, uh, Philip Brickman and others have shown is that when we achieve, we enjoy a temporary high, whether it's when we achieve our dream job, yeah, for the first month we'll be ecstatic. Uh, or when uh, we win the lottery, yes, for the first three months we'll be very happy. Um, but very quickly we go back to where we were before. In other words, achievement of uh, goals, no matter how uh, big they are and how important they were to us, will at best lead to a temporary high. In... Um, uh, at the same time, not having goals, not pursuing goals, um, well, th that also is not um, a prescription for a happy life. We need goals that, that are meaningful to us, and we need to understand and embrace the fact that it's the pursuit of these goals, the day-to-day -day pursuit of these goals, that's where happiness resides. So Carl Jung says the least of things with a meaning is worth more in life than the greatest of mm -hmm. things without it. Um, and I'm thinking we might need a primer on meaning and, and how we identify um, something having meaning, how we recognize it. Yeah, so um, you know, the, the, the best book that I know on, on, on this whole idea of meaning is uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And um, Viktor Frankl makes a very important distinction, uh, a subtle distinction, an important one, between the meaning of life and the meaning in life. So the meaning of life is this, you know, grand uh, objective, uh, you know, change the world, you know, end, end apartheid, uh, end poverty, you know, these kind of uh, 
uh, all embracing life goals. This is what I was put here on earth to do. Um, some people can find the meaning of life. Uh, in religion helps us find the meaning of life. But there are many people who don't. However, not all is lost. Far from it. Because we can find the meaning in life. I can find meaning in my interaction with, um, with, uh, with my daughter. I can find meaning in a, in a, in a nice meal that I have. I can find meaning in a sentence that, 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 that I wrote or read. Um, so it's possible to find meaning in life, in the day-to-day activities, if, and once again, this is a big if, if we take time to savor and appreciate and remember that we can find meaning in all, in all those things. So short of my, finding the meaning of life, uh, we can find the meaning in life in our day-to-day activities. And maybe to remembering that we're the expert um, for ourselves. You know, instead of looking as to what is supposed to make us happy, what are we supposed to like, mm. um, to remember, which is seem, so, seem the, the thread that runs through that every conversation you had with Avi was the, the genuineness um, and his determination to what made him happy. Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, Avi made the distinction between, um, um, between research and me-search. Research and me-search. And me research. research is about looking at, you know, what other people have done and, and the analysis that, that, that they've run and, the, and, and their reflections. Me-search is me looking within and asking exactly what you said. What is it that provides me with meaning? Uh, in my life, what are the important? What do I want to dedicate my very short, limited time here on Earth to? And um, it's when we when we look within. Again, not all the time because the over-examined life is tedious, but at least some of the time, that's when we can uh, fulfill more of our potential for for happiness. And also, maybe we can trust our internal diagnostic system, right? For it, not it. Huh. I liked this yesterday. I'm really not liking it right now. Or, mm-hmm. hey, I didn't know that I liked this, but I'm really liking this. That, you know, life is fluid and that that's okay. And, and another thing that's okay is to make mistakes. Um, again, giving ourselves psychological safety is no, is, is no less important than others giving us psychological safety. All right, so the last question, Avi talks about work and the salon being his lighthouse. Um, did that get you thinking about what your lighthouse is? Yeah, so I must say for me, the, lighthouse, the, lighthouse, the foundation are, um, are my relationships. Um, so, you know, even when I, when I, when I am stressed at work, which, which does happen, when I'm traveling a lot, um, Sometimes all I need to do is uh, take out a picture or just close my eyes and imagine uh, my, my, my family and my close friends. And, um, and I'm there. I, I recenter and, and remind myself of, um, of, of the source of, uh, of my work. He made me think of, of one thing there that I think is also important is that Happiness is a really cool emotion in that happiness can be there even when you are stressed or even when you are challenged or even if you're sad, that, that it's not, mm. it can be under there and, and supporting all the other the emotions and experiences. 
Yes, exactly. So happiness in, in, is, is actually in a way more, much more than just an emotion because uh, happiness also includes your um, um, a sense of meaning and purpose, which, um, which is something that, that is cognitive and, and, and evaluative. Uh, happiness is also um, um, uh, intellectual. You know, when, when I delve into a, a, um, a text um, and, and, and read or when I look at a, at a, at a work of art and, and analyze it, sometimes before the experience of my emotion, there is the, um, uh, you know, the analysis and the thinking and then comes the emotion. Um, so ha- happiness is multifaceted. It's not just, okay, smile and then you'll be happy. It, it, it's that too and it's uh, find meaning and it's engaging things that are uh, interesting to you and it's uh, spend time with, with your loved ones and on and on. There are many ways in. And, and I was happy to have this conversation. I was thinking about it this morning. I'm a little nervous, but I'm really happy because it's exactly the kind of conversation I like to have. And, and paying attention to those things, I think, helps you to hone your skills so we can all be more like Utah and Avi, experts in happiness, at least our own. Well, I think, I think that's the key. And remember, even if you do become an expert on happiness, to give, you know, give yourself the permission to be human because... Um, the um, the joyful emotions are part of life, and so are the um, uh, the painful ones, all part of the package. Right, and the, the the whole picture. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the book, Shortcuts to Happiness: Life Changing Lessons from My Barber, Tal Ben Shahar. And thank you so much for joining us today on that. Got me thinking and, and sharing your insights. Thank you, Ali. All right, it was great talking with you. And you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> 